Hello, and welcome to Grace Church Vienna. This Sunday, we welcome Klaus Potsch with us, and he will give us an overview of the whole book of Habakkuk this morning. In this book of the Old Testament, we will learn about the prayers of Habakkuk and how God answered his questions and complaints. We will learn about five woes, and that human perspectives and the perspective of the Almighty God don't always match. We will see that God will be victorious in the end, and how we, through faith, can be strong. Now, this is Klaus. A, fam- a couple travels by car to, the fa- to their holiday destination. After 15 minutes, the five-year-old child asks, How long, Dad, until it takes so that we get there? In a hospital, a man is in bed there with a complicated leg injury, and he asks the doctor, How long, doctor, will it take until I can walk again? There's war in a country. People have to flee. And they look back and said, well, how long will this war last until we can return? And I have also a personal example. For two years now, there's a court case between a dispute between um, custody between my daughter and the father of her child. It affects the whole family. Days and evenings of compiling material, days and evenings of condensing arguments for the court case, not to talk about the the phone calls. And, you know, between the different family members, there's the length of phone calls. The shortest is between father and son, and the longest is between daughter and mother. So that happens normally after the, our grandchild is in bed and she doesn't listen to what mommy says. And when Carolyn, my wife, talks to her, it's normally at TV prime time. I don't uh, regret missing TV, but I could picture better entertainment in the evening. And it's still not over. And I ask the same question, how long? Like the prophet Habakkuk. How long, O Lord, will I call for help, and you will not hear? I cry out to lose violence, and you do not save. The question, how long, seems to pop every time when we are in an unpleasant situation. What does the prophet see in his country, Israel? Iniquity, wickedness, destruction, come on. Destruction, violence, strife, contention. And the legal system is in disarray. The prophet knew quite well that God is not pleased with such a situation and will not tolerate these traits in Israel. But what would he do about it? The answer came immediately in a very unexpected way. God will send the Chaldeans. They are evil, and they are warriors. And it seems as if God is driving the devil out with a Beelzebub. 
but they had their own understanding of justice. It seems as if they wrote their own laws. In spite of, of the fact that the situation will get worse, the only satisfying thing is that the evil, the Chaldeans, will be held responsible for it, what they do or did. Did the Chaldeans come because God called them in? No. It was their nature to conquer, to destroy. The structure of the first chapter gives us the answer. All of them came for violence. Evil often uses violence. Where I worked in the first years, there was a cleaning lady, and I was my desk was in the basement, and that was the area where she kept everything clean. She was from the Voivodina. And interesting enough, people speak Serbian there nowadays. She spoke Serbian, and I spoke Russian, and we barely understood each other. That was the fun part. But she told me and enlightened me very much when the, that was the time when the Yugoslav war was going on about the different nationalities and, and what their traits are. And she said, well, uh, first of all, let me, the Voivodina is an area where Maria Theresia settled German-speaking people, the so-called Donauschwaben, the Danube-Swaben people. And she said, well, further up here, Croatia and Slovenia, these are the busy people, creative and industrious, while the army was more or less dominated by the Serbs. In the, in the war then, the Serbs confiscated the farms in the Vojvodina, but didn't know as warriors how to run a farm. So everything collapsed, the system there. They practiced the tactics of burnt soil. Another prime example is Dubrovnik. Never know, it's Dubrovnik or Dubrovnik, doesn't matter. If you're there, first time I was there, I went to the city wall and there was a big table and it gave you all the information what happened during the Yugoslav war. And the Serbs the, shot 3,000 shells on the ancient city of, of Dubrovnik. It is called the, the Pearl of the Adriatic Sea. After those bombardments, it wasn't a pearl anymore. But nowadays, you will be surprised. The roofs are repaired, and when you walk on the city wall, which you can do, really nice walk, you see all the new roofs are all replacements of the old time. At the time when I was there, it was in the 90s, 1990s, you stood on the street, you looked through the windows, and you saw the sky. And... They said, well, if we cannot conquer this city, the inhabitants shouldn't enjoy it either. So, boink, they uh, uh, bombed it. Similarly, the Chaldeans came to destroy as well. They didn't, but they didn't get away with it. It's, it's similar to a situation which I hardly understand. I don't know why that is so. God hardened Pharaoh's heart to show his power and sent in the ten plagues. And finally, the Pharaoh uh, paid the price and drowned in the Red Sea. 
The prophet Habakkuk was not really amused with God's approach in this situation to send in the Chaldeans. And therefore, he asks God three, uh, three times why. Why does God use the Chaldeans anyhow? Why does God use more wicked people to correct Israel? Why is there no ruler who controls them? The reaction of the prophet is surprising. He does not fall into lethargy and says, well, that's a situation I can't do anything. He doesn't become inactive. But as the first picture that you saw with this portrait, he saw the no way out, but he saw that God could do something. So he said, well, I'm standing on the rampart on the city wall and look up and wonder what God will do. I'm waiting. And that's the hard part. Like in my situation, two years, waiting, waiting. This is not my strength. I'm a doer. Yeah, I want things done. If I have a solution or an idea, I want to pursue it and do it. But if it's such a big problem with a whole nation, a single person can't handle it or improve something. You have to rely on God to, uh, to bring justice to the situation. How about you? Can you relate to Habakkuk? Have you been in a situation for waiting? Yes or no? But then in the next chapter, this is how he stands and watches. In the next chapter, evil will be dealt with. And God paints the picture of what kind of punishment the Israelites will endure. The message is clear. The Chaldeans will storm in. And we will learn in that chapter there are several ways to approach the structure. And one is who will live, who will lose his life, and who is already dead. The Chaldeans will come for sure and they will steal and plunder. By the way, stealing, a, a, a really positive story. Yesterday, my wife called me. She was shopping at G3. She said, my purse is stolen. So she went to the security team. They looked at the, at the video camera tapes, scenes, identified the scene, noticed or remembered what the man looked like, walked around, found him sitting there, called the police, police came and got him. And that's it. I was there and I heard the phone because I said, how much money was in your wallet? Well, 50, 60 euros. And said, well, it's the same color that you described, but it's not yours. But when I called at four o'clock, she was at the police station, they got the guy. They just, he just came to steal. They interrogated him and said, well, I left, I left my home at 8 o'clock in the morning, drove to get dry just for stealing. And he was not Austrian. I don't know which, where he was from, but that's what's happening. 
And this happened now the second time to my wife. And for you ladies, do you know what the reason was why she, her purse was stolen? The purse was not zipped. Yeah? When I bought souvenirs from my trips for my two daughters, I always bought maybe a woven bag. It had to have a zip on top. Yeah? So, please. And, and this is not Christmas. Just happen... Imagine what will happen at Christmas. You cannot find the guy who or the person who steals there. Well, there is small case stealing and there's big case stealing. Whether it's in the open or it's not in the open, it's a systematic, yeah? The system is stealing or what well, a corporation is kind of stealing because they exploit the employees big companies, I don't name them, but if you, it happens also from the rulers of countries, and in 1919 in Africa, here's the list, how rich the people write on so that they all steal, yeah, and remember in the Bible there are cases where God says, well, this guy was rich, Joseph was rich, Abraham was rich, yeah, nothing. Solomon was the richest man maybe ever lived. And fine, yeah? If you use your riches for God's glory, no problem. If you use it for your own pleasure, uh-uh. That's not the good. And a little further back in history, in um, I learned in an exhibition that in 1860, around 1860, in Russia, the Russian Orthodox Church and the aristocracy equally owned the same amount of bond slaves. Meaning, the people who couldn't say, oh, this is mine, I can work with that. No, they worked for their masters. And it seemed, doesn't seem to end because there's something, maybe you, you, you've heard of that. Putin's palace and his hardest critic, Alexei Navalny, uh, composed a video that you can find on the internet on Putin's palace. Just It's an hour long, more than an hour long, this documentation. It's incredible. The worth of that palace is more than a billion euro. Milliarde in German, yeah? But chapter 2 is a revelation for the prophet. It says it will be fulfilled at the right time and it will not prove false. This is the true sign of a prophecy. The chapter tells us how and who will survive the violence. So, to the exegesis. Here we are. First, the righteous will live. The enemy, the Chaldeans, relying on, on his strength, will forfeit their life. And neither will the ones relying on idols, because the idols are already dead. Now in detail, verse 4 is one of the most quoted verses in the New Testament. When it says the righteous will live, what, can, what does this live mean? Live 
Is it the physical life, meaning survive the invasion, or is it the spiritual survival? It could mean both. I would more plead for the spiritual because we'll live in the future. And this is how it's understood in Romans 1.17, Galatians 3.11, and Hebrews 10.38. Paul expands in Romans on this topic extensively. The enemy is described as arrogant, under the influence of wine, greedy, never satisfied. In verse 5, we read of that chapter, Indeed, wine betrays him. He's arrogant and never at rest because he's a greedy as the grave and like death is never satisfied. Have you ever heard of J. Uh, J. Paul Getty? He was an oil tycoon, died in 1978 and was supposed to be the richest man on earth at that time. When he died, his worth was $8 billion in 78, yeah? So calculate that with inflation to now, kind of 40 years later. I, I don't do this in my head because I don't know the percentages of the inflation. But you can, uh, can come up with a large number that gets close to Bill Gates. Yeah? And the question that well, he was asked one day is, he, there are many quotes, you find them on the internet, really nice ones. But one question was, how much is enough? And guess what he said? Just one dollar more. This is innate into people. And I remember when I was in, in, at university studying, I thought and read the newspaper of all the social differences in various areas of the world. Let's say Latin America, there was Asia, Africa. And there's a difference between the poor and the rich was in, incredible. And I thought, thank God that in Austria that's not the case. But if you look in the Western so-called first world, we're getting there as well. Incredible people. And, this, and you read, oh, they donated so much money. Like, what, let's say, Bill, uh, Melinda, what was it? The wife of Jeff Bozo. Yeah? She, she, she gave millions away. Uh, billions away. Yeah? And... You think, is, is that a generous gift? Yeah, but she's still left with a, with a huge pile of money. And that, remember, there was um, Lev Tolstoy, the Russian writer, has a short story. I remember we read that in, in high school. And the title was, How Much Land Does a Man lead, Need to Live? And the question for me is, how much money do you need? I wouldn't say uh, <laughs> barely to come through the month, but say comfortably, have some entertainment, can go on vacation. Think of that. I think it's less than 10,000 euro. But everything above that, why don't people share? And I think Christians fail a little bit getting that message across. You have to share. Not, not like the, the, the first Christians, well, they shared everything. They sold everything. Those times when you're in pressure and there's a dire need, 
You don't have, you had to share everything. Now you don't have to share everything. But think about giving, yeah? And I remember one time, one of um, my uh, technicians in the lab where I was working, working he said, he was a uh, believer, I think. He said, at Christmas, I give so that it hurts. Think about that. Think about your missioners, Höfler and Rob Vollebrecht. Rob Vollebrecht barely lives and has several needs. Yeah? And as it says, the people, the enemy is arrogant. Lucifer was also arrogant, but Lucifer fell. And the, uh, the Chaldeans also will fall in Habakkuk's times. And another way of getting to, uh, to the message of this chapter 2 is there are five woes. The, fi the first woe is pride. The enemy increases his wealth by stealing, verse 6 and 8. Israel's creditors will arise and the people will come, become their prey, verse 7. The enemy will destroy the land. These actions will be like a boomerang. Verse 7. Then comes iniquity. His riches, enemy's riches, are accumulated by unjust gain. Verse 9. Like our castles, theirs will be perched on top of hills. This will give them the feeling of safety. Remember Putin's palace on a hill. Yeah? At the seaside. Yeah, of course. And, but planning the ruin of others will bring shame and destruction and ultimately cost his life. Verse 10. Later generations will see the destruction in the wake of this action since verse 11. Violence is the third woe. The enemy's cities are built on bloodshed and injustice. Verse 12. What the enemy will build is just fuel for fire. It will burn down eventually as well. The coming generation will see God's hand and his glory in it. What is meant? The destruction of the enemy, verse 13, is com comparable what you see a similar thought in Ecclesiastes 1.3. The enemy's labor is in vain. You work and work at some point what you built up will crumble down. Fourth woe is debauchery. The enemy will perform orgies, getting drunk, performing sexual excesses. Verse 15, instead of glory, the campaign of invasion will yield shame to the enemy. Verse 16, Taking resources from Lebanon is also on the list of his failures in verse 17. And the last one, the last woe, is idolatry. Precious wood from Lebanon may serve as raw material for the idols that are carved from it, but they will not help. In spite of the fact that they will be covered with silver or gold, they are dead. They cannot become alive. How do you feel today when you hear how companies treat their employees? 
In which way do they make money? I, I once made for a, for a presentation a calculation. What is the hierarchy in a company? How many people have a boss? And the next level of bosses, how many bosses have the next boss and so on. And then the income level. And you calculate this from the Kollektivvertrag, yeah, what the unions negotiate. And you come to an interesting conclusion that it doesn't matter how much you pay the CEO, the top, the top management, first or second la uh, layer. That doesn't ruin their finances. But if you really keep the wages at the lowest level small, that's the mass. And this makes the, uh, makes the finances of the company. It's incredible, this calculation. So, what is now Habakkuk doing? He was complaining the whole time. And now comes something very surprising. The deliverance. What a change in atmosphere. If you go to the commentaries, you find, oh, this chapter 3 is a prayer of Habakkuk. It is a psalm. And when I read one line in the, of a commentator, he said, well, this is one of the most difficult chapters to interpret. I said, good night, would I have gotten myself into it? And I have to say, the language is very poetic. I'm not a specialist in poetic Old Testament language, and it would exceed my ability to interpret it word by word. But the content is comforting. It tells God is there, he does something. And God doesn't say, I'm sorry that I sent the, or let the Chaldeans in. No, there's no regret, nothing. It's only the Habakkuk talks about the greatness of God. What has he done in the past? Look at all the other sermons that are in, 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 in um, Acts. They talk about the deliverance from Egypt. Yeah? God got them out of the mess. And the, God, the prophet presents in this chapter. Yeah. First, you come to God's reputation. And it, the text says, Lord, I've heard of your fame. I heard your greatness. And I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. And the prophet saw it. Then comes God's appearance, God's glory, God's facing the enemies, God's acting, God is defeating Israel's enemies, He's delivering Israel, He's subduing Israel's enemies, and the verse we already saw at the beginning of the service, the prophet's reaction, the sovereign Lord is my strength. The same happens to Job. God doesn't apologize as to Job for what he has let him get into. I said, it's for me, it's hard to understand Job, the book of Job. God is in a dispute with Lucifer, with Satan, and who pays the price? Job. God, in chapter 38 and following of the book of Job, doesn't apologize. He said, 
Sorry, Job. I, had, I was at war with Lucifer. He rewards him afterwards, but there's a reason why Job had to go through that. I don't expand on that, but it's, a, it's difficult, but um, you can read the book. It's pretty long. So, in the 60s, 1960s, I remember I saw a mountain movie called, the title translated, Stars at Midday. I think it was a French movie called Etoile du Midi that has a double meaning. Stars at noon or stars in the south. Yeah? Sterne über Mittag, it is the German title. A camera team wanted to create a spectacular mountain movie. They had a dummy and let it fall over the cliffs and, and tumble down and use that as something, an, an, an opening for the movie. And the local tour guide said, what are you doing? Yeah, we want to do a spectacular movie. He said, not so. He said, I will show you. Let me do the same. 34 years ago, I undertook the longest ski tour of my life. 10 days, 160 kilometers, 1,000 meter climbing per day. It was from Argentière, that's close to Chamonix, to Sarsfé in Switzerland. So we started in the rain, and then after the front went through, we had nine days clear weather. On the third day... We crawled out of our sleeping bags at 5 o'clock in the morning, and we saw that. It was the Valsorai cabin, about, I think, 2,900 or 3,000 meters, like on a balcony. The mountains in the front still in gray, and then behind the pink Mont Blanc. We moved on one day better than the next. And on the second to the last day, we went up a mountain called Alalin. That's in South Fee already. Incredible view. I asked the tour guide, can you explain me, explain what these mountains are in the back? And he said, I've never seen so far. Mont Blanc, more than a hundred kilometers away from you, Schnee Alpen, French Sea Alps, that was South Tyrol. You turned around, you had the limestone mountains of Switzerland, yeah, the whole crest from Wallis to Silvretta, incredible. And just a semisphere of blue above your head. That was a long time ago. Sorry, my nose is running. That was the first time I was really physically in shape. And the last time I tried to be in shape was this one here. This was sunrise and moon, moon set on the way up to Mount Elbrus. There's the Caucasus, and one valley further to the north is Mount Elbrus. It's a volcano. 
not difficult to climb up, but you need good weather. And this was about five, around six o'clock in the morning. Also incredible. When we came there to get um, um, used to the altitude, every afternoon it was pouring down. Then we went over and did one tour also in the fog and so on, and then it cleared up, and we saw that. That is on top. Altitude 5,642 meter. Incredible. And this one was on the next morning after we became down, skied down. And can you imagine this warm front that went through? This is a glacier, yeah? And the warm front came through and dropped a ton of snow. And because it was warm, the snow stuck to the ice so we could go up with skis and a year earlier they had to use crampons Steigeisen, yeah, to get up thank you up and down with crampons is not fun it was about 1800 meter the last lap but that was his and I bought a, um, a picture yeah a big big photograph like this with all the peaks and names and then the altitudes and I thought well, of course, they waited until they had a clear day. And I was given and blessed with that clear day. And I can I tell you, my experiences on mountaintops, I was so blessed. The majority of my top experiences are at Kaiserwetter. That means no cloud in the sky. And sometimes I stand in front of impressive mountains knowing the hours it will take to get up. And I ask myself, is it worthwhile to get up there? Like, meaning in life translated, is it worthwhile to get through the difficulties that we face? And I tell you, when you stand on the top and, and I've reached the top, you say it's worthwhile. When you've gone through the difficulties that are placed in front of you, you say, okay, I've learned something. And that's probably what God does with us. And life presents challenges in family, in education, in your office. And you may ask, you say, why is life so hard? Why do I experience opposition? Resistance that really drains me. The situation that we have in our family, there were days where my wife hardly slept during the night. And I'm, I always was afraid well, when she was still driving to work with three or four hours sleep per day during the work time, I hope she doesn't get into a car accident. But she went through and, but I tell her, it's not over yet. I'm, we're still in it. The prophet Habakkuk describes this situation, this feeling in the first chapter of helplessness. He doesn't understand why the correction will be done through something that will deteriorate the situation. The situation will get worse. But then in the, in the third chapter, you see all the glory of God. And he rejoiced and praised God. And to the conclusion, what do we do if we get into a situation like Habakkuk? You are welcome to cry out to God. God's solution 
to your problem may be unexpected. In the end, God will have the upper hand. We hope that too, personally. You will live, survive on the basis of his righteousness. What kind of righteousness do we learn in the Old Testament? It's Adam's, uh, Abraham's righteousness. He believed in God what he said. In the New Testament, we have to believe in Jesus and we are accepted by God standing behind Jesus and God just sees Jesus and not our sins. And you can say with the um, prophet Habakkuk, the sovereign Lord is my strength. Amen.